welcome listeners to episode eight of uh, the Inside Swoop, uh, the Collingwood podcast brought to you by my co-host, Marcus Wagner. Uh, Marcus, welcome to you. Hello, Riles. Good to have you up in Queensland, although we are in separate spots at the moment, which is unique in itself. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, and uh, the voice behind Riles is Stephen Riley. And uh, together, we are the Inside Swoop team. And uh, Marcus is very right when he says that uh, we're both in Queensland, but I'm on the Gold Coast in, uh, in quarantine uh, for another five nights and uh, before I'm released from captivity and uh, head up to join you, Marcus, uh, at Twin Waters on the Sunshine Coast uh, up near Maroochydore. So, yeah, it's been, um, a, been, been a unique experience coming up to Twin Waters. Obviously, we came out of out of Perth with our, I guess, a towel between our legs a bit after losing the Frio. Um, a really tough, a tough loss, I guess, on that last day in Perth. And we jumped on the plane and got to Twin Waters. Um, but what was good when we arrived is a lot of the players' families who had come up and quarantined like you are at the moment, Riles, were, were waiting for the buses when we arrived. And they had made a sign saying, welcome, welcome to the pies. They had all the kids' hands all over the sign, um, handprints and a lot of tears and a lot of a lot of smiles and um, it really did liven the mood up for us when we did arrive from Perth. So that's, that's been great. But yeah, our, our world's pretty different up here. We're in a kind of got three team rooms next to each other. We've got Melbourne on one side and North Melbourne on the other side and, and bumping into people from all different clubs, which has been, been great. Um, and just having open chats and seeing how everyone's going about it in different ways. But yeah, a bit different to where you are at the moment, Riles, and in one of the transition hubs. So maybe talk us through what your world looks like at the moment. Well, um, it's uh, I've got the Wagner clan on one side. Uh, <laughs> running those, the running yeah, this is this is the great Wags's family. Uh, his lovely wife Loz and children Harvey and Chloe. They're on one side of me, and I've got Jane Walsh, wife of our GM of football, Jeffrey, uh, on the other side. Um, and uh, so, but all is well. We've just uh, finished off with Dean Philopolis, one of our strength and conditioning um, team. He's up here in quarantine as well, and he's been running. He's he's running rehab sessions for Will Kelly, one of our players who's also in quarantine here. Uh, but he's also been running in his downtime uh, brutal exercise uh, classes for the the Collingwood group up here. And there's about thirty of us, mostly. Uh, under the age of five, um, but uh, and uh, it's uh, it's it's an embarrassment to admit that after one of his sessions, I had to wave the white flag today. Day two of the, of the uh, I was creaking to the point where I thought I would snap. So I've had to raise the white flag and bail out on today's session. But um, we're biding our time with um, you know when we're not working and and some of the children, um, my own daughter. Youngest daughters studying remotely. Uh, Rob Harvey's daughters who are here as well. They're teenagers. One, in fact, one's in university, but they're studying remotely. Um, so, and and then those of us who are working, sort of filling our time with work and and uh, if not school, um, very tough for uh, for some of the um, well, someone like your your lovely wife Wags, who's trying to work full time, manage the kids, and uh, and keep them occupied, uh, but. Look, we've been looked after royally here and the time seems to be passing quite quickly and we can't wait to get up there to sort of reunite, reunite the whole group, really. Um, but I'm more interested in 
a fascinating story that's emerged from Maroochydore. And uh, I've had various accounts of this, um, that on early in the stay, in the stay uh, Alex Pendlebury, wife of Scott, was walking with their oldest child, Jax, along a path and they came across not just a big python, but a python that had just eaten something. You're not quite sure what it was, but it had a huge, <laughs> it was a big lump in the python's stomach, in the belly of the python, looked like a frog or a rat or something. If that wasn't scary enough for those who are unaccustomed to seeing snakes on their daily walks, um, a couple of nights later, um, one of the media team, Megan Lohutsky, looks out of her out of her apartment, and there is a python wrapped around a branch at eye level, and she's at, looking right at her. Um, it then drops to the ground and slithers away across the uh, across the path. Uh, hysteria ensued. Um, I believe Jeffrey Walsh calmed Megan down by telling her that. Uh, snakes travel in pairs so there's another one around <laughs> and um, and so and the news quickly traveled down here to the Gold Coast and um, I, I'm, I, another another moment of, of hub life um, Tim Broomhead's partner Dia she's Belgian in Belgium they don't have snakes and she saw the, the photo went around the table of, of uh, where a few of us were gathered and she thought we were joking that when somehow we were contriving to wind her up, you know, well, wait until you get to the, the Sunshine Coast, you know, your can of snakes. She didn't believe that it was real. And then when it dawned on her that it, it was in fact real and that where she is going, there may be pythons, we could have put her on the plane straight back home to Belgium. <laughs> she was terrified. It's, it's, he's, he's a friendly fellow. He, he just moves slowly around. It's, it's all fun. There's a lot. That's, I guess, the unique thing about where we are. We're in kind of a subtropical climate. There's animals everywhere. I woke up this morning, there were three kangaroos on the doorstep, just munging away at the grass. And um, yeah, so we're, we're surrounded by, by nature. It's a, it's a beautiful place. Um, but yeah, there are a few, few snakes uh, around the trap. So we've just got to keep our, uh, our wits about ourselves. But um, no, so far, so good. Bryles, no incidents. But um, yeah, everyone settled in very nicely. Uh, we're right on the beach, which I know you'll love. So you can go. I think we're allowed to go for a surf and a fish. So I went for a for a swim this morning. It's beautiful out there. So I know you don't have the beach where you are in quarantine at the moment. So no doubt uh, you'll be jumping straight in there. But yeah, so far so good. And I guess another quirk of our, I guess our season. Every every time we've landed in a new place um, as part of the hub, we've we've won the game. So if you count round one as as a win, uh, I guess Melbourne is a new hub. That's that's one win. Then we. Travelled to Sydney to play Hawthorne as the first step in our hub, and that was another win. Travelled to Perth and beat Geelong um, as a win as well, first up, and then obviously got to got to Queensland and, and just knocked off Sydney on the weekend. So we're we're 4-0 first up. So in racing parlance, we're getting on us when we're first up at a new uh, interstate venue. So um, got Adelaide this week, first up, Riley. So fingers crossed that trend continues. Yes, yes, let's hope so. Just, just quickly, just touch on... Um, adding uh, until you got to Twin Waters, it had basically just been the football program traveling in the hub. So you really, you know, you could set the daily schedule as you wanted. I assume you're still doing that, but now that you're, you're blending families and children in particular into the, the equation, how have you been able to sort of um, maintain that strict discipline about training, playing, recovering, and, and still trying to uh, live lives you know, that, 
uh, now that there are, you know, families and children about as well? Yeah, I think it's just the delineation of when you're on and when you're off. I think we've been really good at dedicating, I guess, football department hours and setting up a football department where we can actually go to work from our from our apartments or our, our rooms. So treat the rooms like home, like your home. So when you get home, you're trying to unwind and not to do too much work. But when you leave the room and you go to work, you set up your own little office space. So it kind of feels like you're going to work. And I think that's a really good delineation that, that's worked for the staff. Um, and with the players, it's, it's as we've said all along, we've tried to pick up our, our program and plonk it down as best we can, which has been really hard given the restrictions from COVID on, on training in groups and whatnot. But also now in this new new era of short turnarounds, because we're barely training at all. A lot's on a lot of what we're doing is active recovery and treatment. Uh, we're still trying to get some weights in, but yeah, the guys aren't going to be training too much over the next few weeks, so they are going to have significantly more downtime. Um, so then it's that's good for the guys with families; they can catch up. But for the guys who don't have families or here one out, we've got to make sure they've got their own space where they can, I guess, unwind away from the families to a certain degree or at least give them the choice to, to spend some time with the other guys with families or, or on their own. So it's just finding those finding those lines where of delineation that, that really help with our program. But yeah, so far so good. Um, yeah, as you said, Riles, you and you and the next batch are coming up on Thursday, which is really exciting. And then um, then we'll have a significantly large travel party. So uh, yeah, dinner service is going to be very, very interesting because up here um, I'm not sure if it's the same way you are, Riles, but uh, we can't serve our own meals. So they have a buffet-style setup, but but we have to get the hotel staff to, to I guess, put the food on our plate. So with uh, north of 150 people, potentially, that's going to be a, a, a slow exercise. So we'll see how that goes with this next group. But, yeah, no, so far, so good, Riles. And um, I think everyone's just, yeah, adjusting and trying to keep a positive spin on it. Yeah, yeah. Um well, something that hasn't been quite so good um, for a period there anyway, we, we want to touch on the, on the games for, for a moment. Um, we were the victims of, the, of some astonishing accuracy. And I want to look into that with you. Um, against West Coast, who kicked 18-3, we kicked 6-9. Uh, the following match, Fremantle kicked 10-1. And we kicked 7-7. Seven, seven. And then to half time of our most recent match against Sydney, they were 5-0. And we had kicked 2-10. So by my reckoning, that is in 10 quarters of football, the opposition had kicked 33-4 against us to 15-26. So that with more scoring shots, but a deficit of hundreds of points or something, whatever it is. It, it's, it, what is that equate to? About 80, 86 points there. Yeah. So it's it's. Do you have an do you have an explanation for that, Marcus? Well, I think it's twofold. If you look back at the West Coast game, well, we got well and truly hammered in that game. But they were kicking goals from everywhere. Like Josh Kennedy was kicking goals from the boundary line, fifty out. Um, they they were kicking goals from from crumbs, from loose balls, just quick snaps that were all just going through. So I think that. Uh, a lot of that was probably their their great execution, but yeah, it's astonishing accuracy. I think the Frio game was a bit different. We gave up a lot of easy goals from from easy positions. I think that was a bit different. That was we defended really poorly that day, um, and the Sydney game was a bit of a combination of both. They kicked a couple of lucky goals, but at the same time, we gave up some some really easy ones. But 
yeah, from from our end, our our conversion's been really poor. Um, not just probably with the goal kicking, it's probably front half as well. Our front half effective kicks have been really low, just just failing to connect with our guys inside fifty. So yeah, we'll obviously be spending a bit of time on that. But uh, a little little uh, story for you, Riles, is we've got a got the call Thursday morning from from Disco and Shan, our COVID compliance, saying that the footies need to be kicked in. Like um, like we discussed on our one of our earlier podcasts about the footies needing to be kicked in to be ready to go for the game. So we had six brand new footies and there was no one around. So I went down by myself for about 40 minutes down to the Oval here and just kicked the crap out of six footies for, for that period of time to kick them in. And the difference between, I guess, when I got them out and they were just pointy and hard to, to after kicking them in was stark. So clearly that process has to happen. But my foot definitely didn't appreciate it. I've had a big, got a big egg on my foot now for, but it just shows the need for, for balls to get kicked in. And it comes back to that point where we're using so many footies now that none of them get fully kicked in throughout the game. But um, clearly I kicked them in well for Sydney, but not for us because everyone was giving me a spray at halftime saying, yeah, gee, you kicked the footies in well, didn't you? <laughs> we were 210. I said, well, Sydney have kicked five straight, so it must have worked for them. So I think <laughs> you can find blame anywhere else these days, but... <laughs> uh, yeah, but for, for everyone at the club, it was my kicking in skills at halftime. But um, luckily, we, we kind of resurrected that a bit in the second half and kicked a little better in the second half and, and converted. And obviously, Dakes' goal late was was very exciting and um, yeah, just really good to get, get the win and, and grind it out. And off we go again. Yeah. It, it, it leads me to a topic where I suppose a bit of a, um, a, 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 a game trend discussion around you know uh, defense against attack um, we've touched on this in the past and you certainly gave a sort of a snapshot of the way you thought the game would evolve this year um, it, it seems as if and you can expand on this that that we've got lots of very good defensive teams you know if you by, by all the metrics um, and very few elite or very good offensive teams um, Give me your thoughts. Well, I think they feed into each other. I think this is what people probably realise when they're watching the game. And I know watching the first quarter of the Essendon and Giants game, the commentators were all over it, is, is the way you use the ball actually fundamentally sets up how you defend. So if you take no risks with the ball, clearly you're going to defend better. So I think it's twofold. Teams are defending better and they're setting up in better shape to defend the ground. But also their ball use is much safer and more, I guess, more protecting their defence rather than taking risks on offence. And that's why I think the the numbers are how they are. And the, the game, the numbers we look at don't necessarily reflect the score. So they can, um, I guess, traverse this strange season with previous historic data. But the way we're looking at it now is there's eight elite defensive teams, eight above average defensive teams and two average defensive teams in the league as it currently sits. Uh, on the offensive side, there's no elite teams. There's no above-average teams. Um, there is, what have we got here? Uh, eight average teams, six below-average teams, and four poor, team, poor, I guess, offensive teams based on our game trends. And and I think that's just indicative of how the game's, I guess, shifted over, over the past 10 years. I think teams are much more secure with their ball movement. They're less taking less risks. But also even the teams that take risks set up so well behind the ball because... I guess part of that offensive uh, game trend we look at is your capacity to move the ball from end to end. So rebound 50, 
firstly to get it outside your defensive 50, but then to get it all the way to the other end. And teams are actually moving the ball pretty well from their back half. It's just that last piece of the puzzle inside 50 that's, I guess, hurting them. Um, but there are still some elite um, defensive half teams and there's still some elite offensive aerials. So offensive aerials coming back into vogue a little bit, as we discussed, the defenders were taking over the world when it came to aerial um, early in the year. Um, you can see some of the big boys now in front of the ball. Obviously, they had slow starts of the year, but they're the ones that were really starting to dominate games. So offensive aerial is coming back into, I guess, um, importance. But, yeah, it's, it's stark. It is genuinely stark. When you look at it as a graphical rep representations with colours, it's just the green shifts from the offensive side of the ledger to the defensive side and the red switches from the, obviously, vice versa. So the game has shifted a lot in 10 years. But, yeah, it's both, I think, ball movement and the way teams defend. But also, I think it's, a, it's there's other an environmental factors, such as we're playing a lot of games at night playing a lot of games in Queensland where it's historically dewy at night. And our game, for instance, started at 5.40 versus the Swans. And when we were setting up, it was magnificent and sunny and dry. And within the space of half an hour, when we ran out to play, it was it was like a, a, a layer of water across the ground again, which does make it hard to control the footy. Um, and the other part is we're on really short breaks. So the players are, are heavily fatigued going into games. So that's obviously going to impact their capacity to spread, um, hit targets as often as we want. Um, so given the, I guess, the, this, this footy frenzy we've got going, you, you can't expect the games to be as, at the same standard as when you have your regular breaks because the players just haven't fully recovered going into the next game. So, um, And that said, a lot of teams are rotating players through as well. So a lot of the, the good players aren't playing every game. So all these multitude of effects are impacting teams' capacity to move the footy. Um, I think more teams, as you get more fatigued, you, you start parking the bus a bit and protecting your back I guess, I guess you're back third. So, yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting time, Riles. But um, for a while there, while, while the games were, I guess, played across normal time slots, there was, some, there was some good scoring coming through. The scoring rate was pretty high. But, yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch over the next, I guess, two, two rounds of games while these tight turnarounds kick in and just see how the scoring rate goes. Hopefully, it, it might, due to the fatigue, the defenders won't be able to cover the ground and the game might open up a bit. But... I guess time will tell. Yeah. yeah. Well, it might be something we, revisit, we can revisit as we, you know, the last two rounds of the home away season are slated to be, um, you know, have seven day breaks in there for teams uh, and then the finals themselves. Now the finals are always a bit of an aberration really because the best teams are playing. And so we get the best football of the year, but um, it will be interesting to see whether um, once we get through this really tightly compressed phase where the scoring starts to, increase with with less fatigue going into games and and probably the stronger squads being on the park i was interested i thought geelong um i'll touch on what we've done in a moment with in that regard but geelong clearly decided to play danger field forward it was a you know just taking him out of the middle now when the game got close in the last 10 minutes i think north got it back to 15 minutes the order went out danger field into the middle he got a clearance they kick a goal and the game was done but they clearly went into that game thinking, well, we, we were playing, but we don't want him in the centre square. Yeah, I think it's uh, there'll be more, more resting forwards, um, I guess, playing a bit deeper and holding their length, which might actually open the game up a little bit. Um, but also, it all comes down to how, how you're rotating your players. And, and we, unfortunately, went, went multiple players down on the weekend. So all our players pretty much had to play pretty high game time after, obviously, us Will 
Will early, and then we lost um, Adsy just after half time, and and obviously Q late in the game. But um, yeah, we had to keep keep our players out there for a significant period. So that's that's where they potentially just rotate on ground and get themselves forward. But the thing with the forward rolls now, they're they're quite um, they're not as kind of relaxed, and you don't get as much of a breather as you once did because you still got to kind of be explosive and and go win the footy and and roll back on team D and things like mm. that so it's not as not just a genuine rest but it's definitely probably less taxing than playing in the mids yeah yeah I, this this returns me to i think something we touched on in another episode where i felt that endurance athletes the guys who can play 95 to 98% game time possibly only have one break a quarter even if that sometimes not even that who can stay out there uh, and still perform at a high level. The guys who can run 15k, you know, relatively comfortably, they're, they're, there's going to be a premium on them. I think if you know they've still got to be doing their job, granted, and they've still got to be you know performing. But uh, it's not a foot race out there. But but if those guys can stay out there and perform, but equally allow more breaks for the guys who need them. Um, in this phase, I think could be um, you know their their value. Uh, or they may be more highly valued than perhaps in other other stages of the season. Absolutely. Um, just um, in terms of the, we we obviously did lose a, a, a three players on the weekend. Uh, oh, sorry, on midweek and um, against the Sydney match. Um, just quickly on Q, uh, Isaac Quainer for our listeners. Um, I understand he he was discharged from hospital on the morning after the game, and he's uh, relatively comfortable. Just tell us from you're on the bench. Um, yep. How that played out at the time? Yeah, it was a, it was a really strange one. Um, obviously, coming through the the centre corridor, he, he laid a big tackle and and we're kind of tracking the ball back again. And then turned our eyes back to Q, who just was sitting dead still on the ground, um, perfectly upright, perfectly calm, holding his I guess holding his leg. And we just went, okay, this doesn't look good because he just did not shift at all. Um, so we were thinking all, all manner of things as he as he kind of popped his Achilles, as he done his Liz Frank. Um, I think Wellesley did something similar at the MCG where he just he sat sat on the ground and, and didn't move. So it looked quite similar to that. Um, so we, were, we knew it was pretty serious from from the start. And I guess once the, the physios got back and called for the stretcher, um, I think one description was, which is, is pretty pretty brutal, is it, it looked like a kind of a sausage on a barbie that had just split down the middle. Um, which is just, just yeah, we all just felt so felt for Q and hope hoped he was all right. But he was amazingly calm. He was probably in a bit of shock through the whole process. But um, no, he's he's going really well. So he he came back to us um, the day after the game and he was walking around really well. I think think everything went well at the hospital and hopefully it's it's just going to be a matter of getting the wound healed now. I don't think there's too much significant damage. So hopefully we get him back sooner rather than later because he's been in great form. But yeah, definitely shocked. Shocked a few. It's a very unique injury. It, looked, it kind of looked more like a shark bite than anything else. But um, it's uh, it was quite 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 gruesome for our medical team. But they, they did a fantastic job, and Q was calm, as I said. And and hopefully we're getting back pretty soon. But yeah, uh, my apologies to listeners. They're not offering a, a graphic language warning there. But um, uh, split sausage and shark attack. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry, yeah, Mel, that's that's probably about as best we can. Well, unfortunately, everyone probably saw the photo that got got put all over social media. Um, anyway, but yeah, it's, it wasn't wasn't a pretty one. But yeah, it's a great result that it's not nothing too sinister.
It's actually, uh, it leads me to a slightly left field question, Wags. Um, players these days, they, as I understand it, they ask for hard, hard ground boots and soft ground boots. Um, it's generally the direction they give to the, the man, their chosen manufacturer. We've got about, I think, 14 or so Nike athletes in our AFL program. Um, and generally what they do is go to, go to Nike and say, I want a couple of pairs of hard and a pair of soft. And um, that's as much as they really, as they, you know, they delve into it. Um, but the boot starter who would typically look after their boots, perhaps choose them for them um, on the, on the day, uh, our, our much loved boot starter, uh, Nilo is stood down, and it just occurs to me that with players not being, you know, technologically minded, often um, they simply just want a boot that works in the conditions. They're not worried about what it's made out of, or you know, they, they want to know how it feels and how it, how it works for them on the ground. Um, umpires no longer come in and inspect boots and and make sure that you know players are complying with all the all the rules and regulations. Players don't give a lot of thought to it. The boot starters stood down. There isn't a lot of um, of of, uh, of um, checking up on on this sort of stuff. And I wonder whether we, if we, as we move to downsize football departments and certainly match day staff, you know, the teams of people who look after a lot of the detail around the team. Uh, if we shared some of them, are we are we starting to? You know, this is a responsibility that would probably sit with Nilo. Um, yeah. and certainly, and and um, I just wonder whether that's being thought of. That, and it's not to say there's any blame here on anyone. That the, the same boots, by the way, are worn um, in the NRL, uh, worn in rugby union, and worn in soccer. It, it's it's just that, um, and and in fact, some of our own players have pairs of those boots. I'm not sure that they've ever worn them, but I know that some of our players have had that same boot um, delivered to them. Um, so it's it's um, uh, yeah, it occurred to me. I wonder who would now that the, I think that well, the AFL sent out a note yesterday, basically saying that you know outlawing anything that has a, a metal, um, a, a, some sort of metal component in the stock. Um, so it's pretty clear cut now. But technology will continue to find ways to try and improve. Uh, you know, companies will continue to try and improve boots. And I suspect that from time to time we will have issues unless we've got people checking up on this sort of stuff. I think it's just, unfortunately, it was was Isaac on the receiving end, but it's just a stark reminder to the industry. I think it's a it's a rule that kind of, um, you know, wasn't enforced or wasn't checked regularly, and now it will. Um, I think usually what happens is when their boots come in and they've got got the metal or the aluminium stops in them, we just swap them out straight away for the for the rubber ones. Um, but I think yeah, for for the most part, the grounds are so in such good nick. It's very very rare that players wear the full screw-ins anymore, which I guess was the unique part of the weekend's game. But yeah, I think it's just unfortunately a stark reminder. It's going to be on the players and clubs now just to, to be really vigilant on it because we can, you can't have another incident like that because it was just, it's it's just a, a standard football action that's resulted in a pretty horrific injury. So mm. I think this will be, unfortunately, we were the example and Isaac was the example that um, is going to tighten up the industry. And I think that's no doubt going to happen now. And I think everyone's, like anything, when something bad happens, there'll be a magnifying glass over it for a, for a period of time, which will straighten everyone up. And then it's just being vigilant going forward that that we keep checking. And obviously, guys get that many boots sent to them by their boot suppliers that um, 
yeah, it's on the players a lot to, to check now, but I think they will because they, they've seen what can happen if, if they don't get it right. So I guess the, the, one of the, I guess the interesting things with Isaac was um, as bad as injury was, it probably helped us get over the line because as I said, we were down to one rotation and it was such a significant incident. It took so much time to get him, I guess, set up on the, on the, the medi cart and, and taken off the ground. It gave everyone on the ground a, a rotation when we hadn't had one and Sydney had all the momentum. So um, we were able to, I guess, reset, get key messages to our guys and really attack, um, really attack the last six minutes of the game, um, which we did and we, we really controlled it. And um, So if there's anything good to come out of it, it was probably Isaac helped us win the game in the end. So, yeah, a little quirk, quirk there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, something else I wanted to talk about, it's, it's sort of off the field more so than on, but um, at the, the Geelong North Melbourne game on Wednesday night, uh, there was one accredited journalist at the ground. Uh, that, that is apart from the broadcast team. On the Thursday night when we played, there were two accredited journalists. And that's not because there is no desire to cover the game. It's simply the age we're living in with the, the restrictions and, and, um, uh, and a lot of the AFL media being based in Melbourne uh, who remain there, they've been un unable to come up. So it, there's a range of reasons for it. But with that, it means that um, um, clubs are turning to um, um, Zoom and other platforms to try and conduct press conferences that allow coaches, that what the coaches have to say post-match, to, um, to be widely disseminated. And um, I, I think I think this may be uh, it's not the most important, you know, sort of uh, well, it won't be one of the most important legacies left by by this age. But um, it may last. It may stay with us because I think it's um, uh, as media organisations um, struggle, there's less money, there's fewer resources. Um, this is a very democratic, cost free, almost cost free way of being able to talk to the coach post-match. So I think it's something we might end up doing permanently. Um, certainly allows dozens of people to talk to a coach when typically at a press conference, there might only be three or four people in there or four, you know, four or five maybe. Um, so I really like it. I, I, I like the fact that it's it can be done relatively. We can invite people all around the country to, to talk to the coach. Um, um, I think it gives an access to the game that, uh, it's an enhanced access to the game, actually. Um, so I, I think it's something that's a, a, a small development that that has been good. Um, with who, one um, caveat. Yeah, I was going to say who who um, who vets the journos coming in onto the Zoom and who controls that flow? Because I guess by doing Zoom, you you open up the the world to a lot more journos who or even people who might not otherwise attend. You do. Um, there is an accredited media list. And when we create a Zoom meeting or, or, or um, and send out the invitation, it goes to that accredited media list. So, and, and the AFL controls that. Um, and there's, there is an enormous, there's, there's hundreds of people, possibly even a couple of thousand people on that list, if you think of the entire industry. Um, but in terms of accredited media, there would be hundreds. Um, and, um, so that's it doesn't go out to Joey on the street. There's no sort of generic offer that goes out across the, the, the social media spectrum. 
But nonetheless, it does mean that newsroom, so it might go to, let's say for argument's sake, channels seven, nine, and 10, and their sports journos would be accredited, and that, but they may alert, let's say, one of their colleagues in the newsroom to the fact this press conference is gonna be held. And that's an opportunity for someone not from the sports industry or the AFL industry to talk, to have it put questions to the coach. And that is precisely what happened yesterday when Richmond were conducting, was conducting its press conference, its weekly um, coaches press conference. And the question was put to Damien Hardwick by Channel 10 reporter who does not cover the game um, about inappropriate behaviour, as he put it, groping in the change room uh, as the players were singing the song post-match. And it, it, it came out of nowhere for, for the coach, uh, unprepared. Um, but it did, it, I suppose it was an example of where, uh, it's not an ambush, it, it, we're inviting people to come and talk to the coach. We want, we want the coverage. I think it's healthy to have um, a good football, healthy football discussions, even robust football discussions. There's nothing wrong with talking about the game. Um, but it did derail that press conference. It was quickly shut down. Um, you can see there is a there is a, a peril in there. It's a, a, um, uh, that you know people can get on and uh, and and if you're not prepared and or you're even unaware of an issue, you may be completely blindsided by it. Uh, you can it can make some for some awkward moments. But on the whole, I think it's a um, I think it's a very democratic thing. I, I would say this for instance, when we're gonna we, we've got a huge following in southeast Queensland. So next year we're playing, uh, we're back in Melbourne, we're playing Brisbane Lions, we're playing Gold Coast. Um, it allows, we can have a press conference with Bucks and it will allow all of the journos in Queensland to get in involved in that discussion. So typically they wouldn't be able to because they're, they're two and a half thousand kilometres away. It would be left to someone in Melbourne to try and find some, you know, to talk on their behalf or, or, or throw the odd question at them. It allows them to get involved and talk about the game from their perspective with our coach. Typically that wouldn't happen. And, and, and they don't need a crew to do it. All they need is 30 minutes on their laptop in their office. They don't have to drive anywhere. They don't have to bring crews or sound men with them. Um, it's a very, very easy, portable, and, and as I say, you know, relatively cost-free way of growing the, the, the building conversations about the game. I think it's really healthy. So do you think so, this will stand, stand the test of uh, post-COVID life or will we stick with Zoom press conferences or a combination, uh, well, a hybrid, hybrid yeah, model? No, I, I, I think there is a play. I mean, particularly when the clubs are filming them in, in, um, you know, themselves and sending out broadcast quality vision. You're not recording off Zoom, you know, which can be a bit grainy and not look so good on television or it can get so... This sending, you're filming the, the the press conference yourself, sending it back out to networks in crystal clear fashion. Um, you would the the those you know viewers on the nightly news, uh, watching the nightly news uh, bulletins wouldn't know the difference. They wouldn't be able to tell. So I, I don't think the product suffers or the the images of poor quality. Um, and and I I just I, I really believe that the more people we can invite in discussions and and um, uh, and talk about the game, um, the better. So, yeah, I, I certainly hope it lasts. We will, uh, from from our perspective, we're certainly looking to do it, to continue it 
even if we return to what we knew as normal. Um, moving on. Um, I've got a, uh, it's time for our book review, Wags. I'm extremely excited by this, Riles. Your, your book reviews are significantly more impressive than mine. So this is a, this is a win for the, the listeners that it's not me and it's you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I'm not quite sure about that. Um, you're very gracious, but um, I am uh, talking about a book today, listeners, that is uh, very close to my heart. It's uh, um, uh, a book by, the, by a fellow by the name of William Finnegan, and he wrote what some describe as the greatest surfing book of all time. Um, it was only a matter of time before we got a surfing segment <laughs> in here. You nearly invited me into this early when you were talking about you know, the, the beaches at Maroochydore. But um, it's a book by the name called Barbarian Days. He, he actually won a Pulitzer Prize for it. Um, it it's, it's a magnificent book because it's not really about surfing. Um, like a lot of sports books, they need to move beyond the subject itself to, to become, um, to, to be uh, really important and meaningful in my view. Um, it's a, it's it's he's an American fellow. He's a writer. He's a writer for a living, um, and a very good one. Been a war correspondent, um, but he grew up. His family moved to Honolulu, Hawaii, when he was very young, and he grew up surfing in the sixties, um, and uh, in Hawaii, and and that lit a fire in him that uh, is still a still a light today. Um, and so, looking back on his life you know, sort of 60 years later, 50 years later, 50, 60 years later, um, he decided to, to sort of examine how this obsession that he, that was developed in him for riding waves when he was a boy, how it shaped his life, um, where it led him, at the choices he made as an adult that were in some way informed by surfing, you know, where, whether it was where he wanted to live, whether it was, uh, his choice of partner, um, you know, she had to be a good traveller because he, you know, that was important to him. And and so he examines his life in many different ways through this, always with surfing at its root. And it's it's part adventure. It's part sort of intellectual examination of obsession. It's a social history because he he came of age in the seventies and and the eighties and. Um, uh, it's just, um, uh, and, and there's also there's a there's a uh, he matures through the book, so you sort of feel like you're growing up with him. You're you're moving through these phases of life that we all go through um, with him, and you're sort of brought along, um, sharing in this journey towards you know the the, the sunset years of his life, um, and uh, yeah, it, it's it's reminiscent in one way of another great surfing book or one in my opinion called all for a few ways more by David Renson, which is um, a biography of a guy called Mickey Dora, um, who was a bit of a rebel and, and lived a very different life to William Finnegan, but it, it sort of explores this idea that of someone dedicating their lives to something uh, and, and where it didn't quite work out for Dora, it works out for William Finnegan. And I recommend it, incredibly highly to anyone who's interested in a life of um, not, not surfing, but of um, exploration. This is a life of a searcher, someone who's 
got an inquisitive mind, um, interested in lots of things. And surfing was just a way for him to explore um, a richer life. And um, I, I can't probably put it any in any other way than that. I highly recommend it. Barbarian Days. It's a classic. Um, it's there's been numerous reprints. It came out. I think it was late fifteen, maybe early two thousand and sixteen. Um, and it, it's there's been, never been a book a surfing book like it. Um, very, very few sports books like it. Um, and uh, cannot recommend it highly enough. Nicely put, Riles. Good way to good way to wind up episode eight. I reckon. Yes. Well, I think that's that's us for this week. Um, listeners, um, hopefully we're back with you after yet another victory. Um, you're, well, and, and I'll, we'll leave you this week with Wags detailing um, a, a, another sort of different experience, football experience this week, because you're from the Sunshine Coast. You're flying in and flying out of Adelaide. Yep. Day to trip, day trip. On, uh, Tuesday night. Day trip to Adelaide. So we'll leave Twin Waters. We'll bust down to Brisbane. Fly to Adelaide from Brisbane. We'll spend a couple of hours at the hotel prepping up and having some lunch. And then get over, play the Crows at Adelaide Oval. And then we will return um, direct to Maroochydore, host the game with North Melbourne. So um, that'll be a bit of fun. So hopefully it's a big, big day. But uh, I guess that's going to be Tuesday. We'll have a quiet day Wednesday. And then we'll see all you mob up with us on Thursday. So, yeah, another mm. unique experience coming up. We'll, um, no doubt, take all the good and, and hopefully get over there and have a, have a good win. But, yeah, we've got a lot of work to do between now and then to, to get, get the game right and, um, and hopefully get some momentum going into the back half of the season. But pleasure, as always, chatting to you, Riles. Hope, hopefully do this face-to-face next time, which will be a unique experience in itself. Yes, yes, it will, listeners. Well, so this is a close to episode eight of the Inside Swoop. Marcus, thank you. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to you again next week.